Welcome to episode 185 of the No Persinium Podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from the No Pro Studios, aka the kitchen table in Los Angeles, California. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you. That's right. Our Patreon backers are our rock solid total only financial support. So for the whole shebang. We'll get into that a little bit later. This week on the show, uh, this is the 185th episode, 185 episodes, and this is the first time we get to have Tom Pearson of Third Rail Projects on the show. Catherine Yu, our managing editor, uh, talked to him in New York recently. They talk uh, a bunch of stuff. Uh, They talked, obviously, about Then She Fell in 2012 and uh, the multifaceted nature of immersive and technology uh, about Tom, you know, you know, not just performing every night, but then stepping into being a full-time company, about the class he just taught at Wesleyan, about the Sandpiper Spell, which is a book he just released. So there's, there's a lot. There's a whole bunch in this interview. I'm looking forward to listening to it. Uh, I haven't listened to it yet. It arrived today. Uh, I'm recording this about nine o'clock at night. So everyone in New York's asleep right now. They don't know I'm doing this. And, uh, this will go out Saturday morning. If I don't just like release it like really, really late at night and then be like, congratulations, early podcast. That's a day late. Um, all right. If you, if you don't, I just can't give you a preview of what the episode is. If you don't know about third rail projects, I, I kind of don't know how you know the show, but like a quick setup there, the people make Then She Fell, and without Then She Fell, there's no no proscenium. Okay, so that's simple enough. Just, you know, I go read something we wrote. Uh, it's it's late, uh, and, and I'm having one of those, like, I don't feel like going over the basics moment, um, except for one bit of basic, uh, which is this. So I've been noticing a lot lately that uh, people aren't, like, writing press releases. Uh, they're just like announcing stuff on the internet. Uh, and that's cool, I guess. But, um, if, if you want there to be some kind of order to all this, write a press release, uh, let the bloggers know. We, we sometimes, um, harp on this and over at Leia, there've, there've even been classes about like, Hey, how, how to, how to work with the press. Uh, and I'm not just saying that cause it like drives me personally nuts. Just be like, come on people like a press release. Uh, but, um, it also, uh, it, you know, it can, it can help a lot with everyone who covers this kind of stuff. It, it's getting harder and harder as a journalist, uh, period, full stop. We did that last week on the show. Not, I mean, I'm going to do it again right now. So, um, and, and just the, it's the little things. So just like a press release, uh, you know, before your show announcement, your tickets go on sale, because then it gets to be part of this big push. And if suddenly everyone's talking about your show, then getting all those tickets sold uh, is just a wee bit easier. So just, you know, give it a think. Give it a think. It can be helpful. Hey, speaking of helpful, you know, it's helpful. Our Patreon particularly our Patreon backers. We've got a few new ones this time out. Uh, Shauna Musgrave, 
uh, Kate Milliker. And and I will read this because, uh, I, I mean, it, sometimes people join up uh, as a, uh, they maybe have a Patreon of their own, and so it's their Patreon name. So polyamorous movie screenings. Cool. Like, seriously. Like, that's great. Um, I, I do prefer uh, when it's people's names just because I don't like this to feel necessarily like an ad. Um, and, and I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that the folks at polyamorous movie screenings were like, ha, ah, we got it. We figured out a way to make an ad of this. Um, but you know, just, just a note, just a note, but I will read it cause I am grateful at like any amount. Um, if everyone who, if everyone who read the thing and did the thing and listened to the other thing gave a dollar, then you'd have a pile of dollars. And what can you do with dollars that you can't just do with dirt? Okay, uh, Eeyore, thank you very much. Um, I've got the late night sillies, even though it's only nine o'clock because, um, I'm tired. There you go. You never know what you're going to face uh, when you get a after dark, actually after dark Nelson. Um, okay. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Jan Bubman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurstan, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. Thank you all, gentlemen, and hope to see you soon. Okay. Um, Tom Pearson, Third Rail Projects. Uh, like I mentioned, then she fell without it. No, no proscenium. Um, as as amazing as Sleep No More is, uh, it, it's intimidating on a certain level. And uh, it's designed so you can't wrap your brain around it. But it was then she fell that with its own clockwork complexity uh, managed to change my perspective on what art and performance could be for people from a uh, audience and participant perspective. I just said perspective twice. Um, it's late. I'm not drinking coffee. That opened up everything. And Tom Pearson is one of the three co-artistic directors of the company. Um, one of the, the, the flame keepers and the guide stars. So... I want you to enjoy this because I've been waiting for this one for a long time. And I thank Catherine, our managing editor, editor, can't even talk, for putting it all together. Here we go. with No Presidium New York, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Tom Pearson of Third Rail Projects. So what is Third Rail for people who might not know? Third Rail Projects is a primarily a performance company based in New York City. Um, we've been around since 2001, and it is um, a group of artists that are... Um, initially, we were, we were all very much a dance company when we formed, and uh, over time have morphed more into uh, a theater company with a very strong movement base. Um, and it's always been um, three artistic directors. 
In the beginning, that was Janine Willette, myself, and Brian Weaver, and since 2004, it's been Janine, myself, and Zach Morris. And over time, we've moved more from proscenium-based to non-proscenium-based work, which has um, been via site-specific work and um, into experiential and immersive work. So the most famous show that you have still running, um, Then She Fell, could you talk a little bit about that and maybe how it's changed over the years? Yeah, Then She Fell was an experiment <laughs> that we launched into uh, 2012 um, it was initially a site-specific work, and that went through a couple of iterations in L.A. and New York, and then um, also existed as a haunted house for a moment, and then landed finally in 2012 at the um, Kingsland Ward, which is what we call the space, and uh, the initial space for that was uh, an outpatient wing of a former hospital. And initially, that was a six-week run. That's what we had planned for. And really, for us, was about exploring what it meant to have a really intimate encounter with an audience being being something that was really crafted and really um, for a small number of audience members that we could interact with them throughout a two-hour performance. And we weren't really sure what we were... We knew what we were making, but we didn't know what the impact of that would be until it sort of hit. And then um, it got quite a quite an impressive response, and we were kind of playing catch-up after that to, um, to uh, build a business model around that that we could actually sustain it. So that's, yeah, that's been six years ago now. So it's been ongoing since then. And... Um, it performs in New York, in Williamsburg, 12, well now 13, because we've added matinees, so we're moving to a more um, a more consistent schedule with that in the next period. So it's uh, 13 shows a week. And how big is the cast? Cast is, um, well, it's eight performers, but it's really 10, because our, our stage management team is also part of the world. They're in costume, they're functioning in the world as, as characters. So yeah, 10, 10 people performing and 15 people as audience. But you started as uh, one of the original performers, is that correct? It's true. I was talking with, um, we have uh, Andy Chapman, who is one of our newer performers recently, um, and, and talking to him the other day about his experience dancing the white rabbit role, performing that role, and how much jumping up onto tabletops and, and, and flipping over furniture, and um, it's just, like, talking about it made me sore, just remembering what that felt like, because I, I, you know, I was in my late 30s when that, when, when we made that show, so I was still operating the same way I had been for many years as a performer, and making these kind of, um, explosive movement choices that I probably wouldn't make now. Um, and I think I performed the rabbit 20, um, somewhere around 200 performances of that before I stepped out of it. That's amazing. I know it, it's, it's weird to think about. I, I remember, um, you know, 
Edward Rice, our business manager, keeps a chart of how many performances people have done. And I, I remember looking at that and being like, oh, I only made it to 200. <laughs> and Ed goes, Tom, what other show have you performed 200 times? But, you know, there are people like Rebecca Morin and Jesse Smith and um, Alberto Dennis and Tara O'Conn and a lot of the people who were of the original cast who have performed over a thousand shows, you know, which is insane when you think about it, what that means, the implications of that just in terms of how many roses have been painted red over the course of 3,700 shows, you know, it's like... How many teacups get broken? Well, not that many. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> Enough, but not that many. I remember the first teacup that broke, actually. Was that a mistake? It was, well, it was an audience broke it. They were, they were... Um, trying very hard to do the choreography with this, which is part of that scene, you know, that there's an opportunity for audience to join in and in that way. And um, I remember this woman slamming her teacup down very hard under her saucer and the saucer broke underneath it. And she had just had this look of absolute mortification. And so I just broke my cup. I just took her saucer and threw it in the corner and then threw my cup after it to just like be like, it's okay. Right, like I, I did it too. <laughs> I know, I, and that's maybe not the right choice, but in that moment as we were discovering like what all could happen and what our responses could be, that was a choice that I made to just make it okay. So, like we're not, we don't try to break the teacups and we don't encourage breaking the teacups, but sometimes it happens and then it just becomes part of the world. So how did you go from this experiment to see if you could do this intermittent intimate performance where people are moving around and being very close to dancers to like an actual company that's now basically working across the country and in other parts of the world like how does that happen well the culture of that isn't that different for us I mean I think I think there's a higher level of recognition and a higher level of of inquiries that come in but we had already been working you know, project to project and consistently for about 10, 10 years by the time we launched Then She Fell. And we had done a few international projects at that point. So it was more about capacity, how, how much it takes to run a show consistently, how many people need to be involved, and how to um, create kind of a company just around that one particular project in order for it to sustain itself and keep going and so that we could step away and make new work. Because for a little while, probably within a, like a good year after we opened, then she fell, that was really our full-time job in so many ways. And we had started developing Roadside Attraction after that. We had, we had already had plans for that and we're building towards that. But most of our energy for a really long time was about performing the show, keeping the show running. When we first started, Janine was washing costumes at night and Zach was repairing sets and I was emptying the pool and refilling the pool and you know sewing repairs on on like curtains and things like that so we were there I remember Zach and Janine and I being there till 2 a.m on some nights many nights when we were first running it so that that was a big change for us being like on the ground do-it-yourself artistic directors who were always part of everything to like being able to actually step back and put other people in charge of this and and to and to really sit down and take a look at like where that needed to happen and why and how and um and we moved from also relationships of being like 
project to project kind of uh, contract based work to like really like having people who are full time in these performances and becoming employees. So we actually shifted to an employee model, um, and yeah, just a lot a lot of things just kind of happened pretty fast as a result of what we actually had made and 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 how it was a consistent sort of endeavor. I think also at the time, um, there just wasn't anything else like it. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, well, uh, I had heard about you guys from a friend who had done the haunted house and I decided, oh, I'll just, I'll back this Kickstarter. Let's see where it goes. Mm -hmm. I think the market seems very different now in New York. Does that feel, does it feel that way to you that back then it felt a little less discovered or just people were only just then discovering how much they wanted to see this kind of experimental theater? I don't know that, I, I don't know about, I think our, our position to it has shifted. I don't know about the market itself. If we're talking about like a market specifically for like things that are branded immersive. Um, but for us, we weren't even really calling it that until we got to that point and there was a name for it that sort of offered itself. And that was where that was punch drunk rolling into town with Sleep No More ahead of, I mean, they were about a year ahead, year and a half ahead of Then She Fell. And, and what happened there, I mean, it, it, they were like a huge impact on, on this becoming um, something you could talk about, something that people would understand or have questions about, and there was a name for it. And, and then we were sort of like, and it can also be like this, this is a very different take. And this is, and, and so we, we actually had people that had followed our work for 10 years who knew us and what we were about. And then another group of people who were experiencing this from a different viewpoint of what it was all about. And that all kind of came, I think that's what we didn't anticipate was that that all kind of came together in this moment on this show. And then there was like, oh, not only do we have the people we've pulled along with us for these 10 years, now we have this other hungry group of people who want an experience and are learning that the experience that they think they're looking for might be many different things because right, we're, yeah, we're, yeah. So, we're so different in, mm -hmm. in some ways, similar in some ways to what Punch Drunk does. There's, there's some aesthetic similarities. And they, they've been making work for this about the same amount of time that we have as a company. So they, they've gotten there in, in, a, in their own way and we've, um, and, and they've been focused on like these sort of large capacity shows and have really managed to nail that model with this, this idea of the mask, um, which is pretty consistent in their work. And for us, it's always been um, a slightly different focus on how to reach audiences in different ways and in their own spaces. A lot of our site work was about putting our work in the spaces that people already inhabit and waking them up to that and, and they'll kind of wonder around them. And we brought that inside with the work that we were doing that was more contained and experiential. And but the but the focus was still on the audience from the very beginning, like how we could be in the same space together and share that moment. So in one sense, like the even though the you know the there could be some similarities that people sometimes see in the work, there's such a different audience model. And 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 also this um I had a student at Wesleyan that actually said a couple of things that I really liked about because they had experienced both of the shows and, you know, with really, really fresh eyes. And 
had said, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, there's a certain amping up that happens with a punch drunk show because the the heightened sensibility of the performance and the space and the, the the vast amount of space that it actually occupies um, calls for a certain level of heightened drama to mm-hmm. it um, that actually is more theatrical in some regards and our work actually tends to have a cinematic quality in terms of its like nuance of you know what this this mm-hmm. idea that we're, we're two people in a room and if I did that I would blow you out of the room and that it's sort of pulling the center of gravity closer between us so it's like kind of an interesting thing to think about in that moment in time when when then she fell launched these were the kind of polar opposite experiences that people could have in that way and then and then you've seen like since then there's all sorts of other people pushing it out on either end and then people filling all through the middle with different ideas about what that means and yet those aesthetic similarities are still there i i view them both as cinematic experiences in different ways they both do feel cinematic Mm -hmm. filmic to me um especially through the design Mm -hmm. yeah and then, of course, you're both dance-based, but a very yeah, different kind of dance. Yeah, yeah it, the, the, and the movement is really about... Um, I can't really speak for them, but just through my own observation, I, it's, it has so much to do with tension between the space. Um, like, they have a, a site-specific um, sensibility as well. And... That's that's something that's really funny that a lot of people over time have asked, you know, it's like, well, do you have to be dance to be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, of course not. <laughs> and you and you don't have to be three artistic directors that do everything all at the same time. You know, like we're, uh, I think like Felix and Maxine have a really different relationship than like Zach and Janine and I have, which is um, almost like a weird rotisserie you know like we have this I've never said it that way before but we have this you know are you trying to explain this type of work to people who come from a theatrical background sometimes it's very difficult because they understand theater as being segmented responsibilities and you have the playwright and you have the you know everybody has their job to do and and there's a, a bit of a hierarchy to what that is how how the script might come first and then the director is there to realize the script and the actors are there to speak the words that have been written and I mean we're so far away from that in a lot of ways and and we devise we devise together but we also you know we we will switch roles in relation to each other at any given time so I can't say who's the writer the choreographer the director um, because it's a completely shifting landscape on everything and we all do all the things and I think that's that's something that comes from our background in dance. That's a choreographer perspective. That's that's how choreographers go into their work. They go in with the design and the vision and the movement and the dramaturgy and, and they really hold all of that. So I feel like that's something we if if you were to kind of like track back through our DNA to see where that, that kind of collaboration comes from, it comes more from a dance perspective, I think. And but you don't have yeah. to be that to right. make immersive theater. That's like, or any mm-hmm. theater or anything. You do all strike me as being fairly collaborative and multidisciplinary. 
So I guess that also explains the explosion of works. I mean, when I go onto your website, like the amount of projects is staggering these days. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how many works we've made. I mean, even even before we got to Then She Fell, I thought we had a pretty substantial body of work. And we had been doing some some um, pretty widely recognized work before that point, too. It's just, um, I think that, that that just put us on a different kind of map. Um, but since then, yeah, we get, we get a lot of, um, well, we get a lot of people who are excited about the work, who want us to make work in different ways for different venues. And we also drive a lot of ideas ourselves. Like we've always done, I mean, we always drive the idea, but the, a lot of times the way we had worked before is like, I have this story, this idea, this image, this vision, and I will find the space. I'll find the producer. I'll find the funders. I'll find, you know, like it would progress in that way and now it's sort of like there's just this swirl of ideas that are raining down from the sky all the time and then we're just matching them in in the places where they make sense so in a way it's a great benefit that there are so many of us because we can do that kind of shuffling around but we like we still lead with the idea very much I feel that that is a, a strength of what we do that that the material is always original and it's always um it's always a surprise if it is immersive in a way. I mean, like, we, we, we do intend to um, deepen inquiries along a certain pathway, but but for me, it's, it's I don't know. I don't know what something's going to be until I live in it for a minute. That's I, I was really surprised last year when I actually published a book. I didn't think about, you know, in 2018, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write this thing. It's just kind of like, this is what it wants to be. It, it actually was, um, I'm getting off topic from your question a little bit, but it's... But, I mean, it is about how you're all, like, you do installation art. You also write poetry. You've done documentary filmmaking. Like, so yeah, talk, talk about your book. Well, the, well, the book was, um, a lot of material that I had written for, I don't know, it, it covers like 20 years worth of, of material. And a lot of it was like ready to be put away for good. And so I was kind of looking at some of it and thinking like, well, what is, what is still interesting to me that I would want to engage with and and look at and maybe do something with it or just, you know, put it into a form that could go out into the world. And and then I have some room (laughs) in my brain for other things. And I had never actually put my writing out as something that stood alone, um, without being in service to, you know, um, uh, a performance that right. we were like a, a bigger thing that had like the third rail mark on it yeah not specifically authored by tom yeah so it, it was kind of a um it was an important thing for me to do and it became clear to me that it was going to be organized in this way and that it was just going to be me out there doing it um which was a little bit terrifying but it was also like really needed at that moment because I, I wanted to just put that work in the form that it wanted to be and then just like you know make something it, the the most terrifying thing about it is just how permanent something like that is like yeah the book's published the book like, is uh, there's no take backs on that like i couldn't even if i wanted to i could stop i could stop it from being in like active print circulation but i couldn't stop the copies that are out right. in the world the people who have already <laughs> bought it and read it yeah it's like it's, it. so, so that was like a um a really 
uh, different meditation on creative life because it's like I have to make something that I can put out there and be, just be okay with letting it go and be okay that it might come back. I think a lot of people have the opposite. They're too used to like the dead tree form of media and then when they get to immersive interactive site specific they're like, oh, it is alive, it is changing all the time. So yeah. that's funny that that part of your brain was like calling out like, hey, you got to do this. Yeah, and part of my brain I think really longed for something that would be tangible, permanent in some way. But, um, I, but I'm, so, I'm, I'm so much more of like a... Um, Com- I guess more comfortable in performance especially as a performer as a creator that performed much of the work that we've done that to me I always feel like I know where I am in that I always feel grounded and you know but you, you hide in a different way behind a book it's kind of weird it's like it's both really scary and um, exposes you but then at the same time you're like behind a veil you know it's it's, it's weird it's just different it's just a different process it's not necessarily better or worse yeah it's just different yeah do you want to talk about the documentary which i think came out around the same time yeah that they came out around the same time but the documentary we actually began filming that in 2014 and it took a really long time um that's the first uh well it's the first and only like really you know I don't know what you call it, distributed film? <laughs> I guess t- it's the only film we have in dis- distribution. We've made a few other films, but they've they've also been a little bit more like the writing. They've been in service to other projects. So um, there, there was a film that we made, a couple little small films that we made that were part of the Drifting Encyclopedia. Um, the film that I made in Russia, which was part of an art installation that we delivered as a augmented reality mosaic along a wall in, in St. Petersburg. Uh, but this is more, th- this was like, Between Yourself and Me, the film, the film, the documentary film, was kind of a, a strange animal too, because it was us collaborating with a filmmaker to, in a way, translate our work to film, which is a, a really daunting task when you have experiential work and you're trying to put it into another medium so you just kind of have to own the fact in some regard that it's not going to be um a synonymous experience that it's going to be some representation of something else so so what the angle of that was to just give a window behind the process and to show a little bit more of us in action thinking about work making the work and where the work comes from and then and then just some really beautiful images of um i ideas from then she fell and roadside attraction especially um that we couldn't do in live performance that we could only do in film so we wanted to play with that i I had this two examples of that the white rabbit hatter fight that in the tea party and the um the furniture solo. I don't. I don't know. You'd have to know the show to know what I'm talking about. But it's okay. Um, there's there's uh, three scenes that were all kind of from one idea that Lizzie and I had developed a long time ago, where the the fight was the tea party, mm. and uh, and then those became three distinct scenes. Uh, 
And I wanted to put them back together and kind of go back to the kung fu inspiration behind them for the film. So I actually put it inside of the interrogation room, which none of that actually happens in the show, and and do something really different with that. So that was fun. And film it from above, you know, and like have um, just the ability to do something that you couldn't see in the show. And it sounds like it was less about literal capture of what it's like to go to Vinci Fell and more about the spirit of what you guys are trying to accomplish. Yeah, I I can't imagine a way to actually represent Vinci Fell without just... Because some things are just based off of proximity and, and this idea that you can sense change between you and an audience in a room. It's about presence and proximity. So, so that's also why the show works. Um, and the same with Roadside. Like we, we had used a very theatrical device in the live performance of the mother role having an avatar uh, that she projects upon. And so there were these you know, two performers who are dressed alike, who look alike, and one can do all the other things that the other can't do. And that worked really well in the live performance. In film, that doesn't hold up. So it's like, you know, if you want to go into fantasy, you can just go into fantasy with that. And it becomes like a movie musical number, you know? So we were playing with that. Um, but our role was to adapt that material, and then the rest was to sit back and, and you know, allow the filmmakers and the editors to kind of put it together and have it have some distance from us so that it could also have... Um, you know, a trustworthy narrator who was not basically making like a marketing piece for us, but was actually exposing something that, that we wouldn't um, we wouldn't put together ourselves. And so that was like a, a really fine line to walk of how to exert some sort of creative control over the stories that we wanted to share, but then letting the also the verite do its work. And that yeah. I ended up being a producer on that more than anything in the end. Like, it was a very different experience. But it was fun, too. I really like working in film, so that was... And I got to work with some really lovely people on that. Could we go back maybe a couple minutes? Uh, So you said you were in Russia making something with augmented reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's talk about... Mm-hmm. Your your baby, okay. Global Performance Studio. Yeah, Global Performance Studio is a... Um, we've yet to decide if it's a project or a program of <laughs> third row projects. We're, we're, we're always kind of evolving the rhetoric around that. But the, the mission, the objective for it is to really connect artists from our company with artists in other areas of the world and have, have that be... A, a slightly alternative model for for cultural diplomacy that that operates a little bit differently than like state department sponsored work which is often very good but often is like companies going in and showing what they're doing and, and having some workshops and for us we wanted to actually go and make something with performers or any number of creatives in in a any given place so what we do is it's sort of half and half usually or actually it's it's more more often than not, it ends up being just a few people from Third Rail, and then the majority of the participants will actually be from whatever city we're working in. So we've done this type of project in Russia and Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Hong Kong. Um, we're hoping to do something in Mexico City soon. We're hoping to do something in a few places um, where artists collaborating together could make a, a really big statement. And... Um, 
for me, it's about what, what are people doing? What are they interested in? How do we meet in a space? And what are the questions we ask? Like all the, all the great questions that come up in collaboration. Um, and with Russia and the project that we just did in Russia, this is an ongoing, um, group of people that I've worked with. So in 2013, I think it was 2013 or 2014 was the first time we did something in St. Petersburg. And that was Marissa Nielsen Pincus and I went together and is that true? It is true. Yeah. There was, there were a couple of things that preceded that, but the, the first time in Russia was the two of us. And we made a work with a group of people, Renata Zhigalina included in that, Daria Karpova, and, um, and I, there were a number of performers that were just amazing. And um, I knew I wanted to work with them again. So Joshua Dutton Reaver, who was also a Third Rail Company member, and I did another residency there in 2016. And he and I went back for a month that time, and Renata... Uh, was with us and also um, a few other people that we had met at that time. And from that, we we actually did an immersive work inside of a cafe, which was like a time cafe. Um, people would pay by the minute to be there. And so we decided to just wrap around that idea and, and do a performance that you could pay by the minute for and experiment a little bit with what it means not to shut audience down with any rules at all. Um, so they could, they were, had their iPads out, they could do whatever they wanted. Like we just kind of let that happen. Um, so in a way we were immersing people in a parallel universe that existed inside of the cafe, but the cafe was still operating as it normally did. And you would actually have the ability in a one-on-one situation, like a one performer, one audience would, would go into a scene and you as the audience member could dial that scene anywhere from a minute to 10 minutes. There wasn't a lot. And, and if, you know, the first person only went for two minutes, then you would get someone else and they would have eight minutes they could go up to. So it was like people were actually having to decide how they wanted to spend their time. And there were levels that that, that one-on-one could go further and deeper the more you stayed in it or it could wrap up. So we, we were playing with that idea too. In meantime, the mean, meantime, there are other things that are actually holding time and holding space in a different way um and we got really excited about you know what we were able to do on that and my relationship with Daria and Asia and Renata were were deepening and so I had this idea that I wanted to go back a third time and this time just work with those three and bring Marissa back um and really work from this new process that I had been developing which was based on sort of personal stories and dreams, but, but using associations to kind of pull that material out and move like unconscious material into the conscious world and move that around between the collaborators and, uh, see if there was some sort of, I started calling it a colloquial unconscious that would, that would begin to develop between the people. So like this idea that people who work together, in a certain way with a certain objective for a certain amount of time, they begin to share images in their dreams and in and, 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 and their vocabulary. And that always happens on a project, like the vocabulary changes. Um, and we, we played with that until we sort of mapped out our story and then we, we storyboarded it and then we shot it all. And then we turned all of those films, we, we edited it as a, a 20, like it's almost a half an hour film. And each one of us had our own area of that that we led that was our own dream 
or our own vision of what things were. And it was all connected by similar images and objects that, that threaded their way through. So we each did that, we edited it together, and then we broke it down into little segments and made um, still frames that became a mosaic along this wall in, as part of the Art Prospect Festival at CEC Arts Link. And when you put your phone up against those different tiles of the mosaic, they became portals into the, the film. So it, we delivered it in that way. We didn't know we were going to do that. When we start, we knew we were going to start with a dream work and we were going to film something. Um, but we didn't know how we were going to deliver it in the end, and we got very excited about the AR. So, yeah, that's, a, that's sort of a long process of how we began, but but it's also part of, like, my objective with GPS is to establish some of these relationships and have these conversations occur, but then have them deepen. And ultimately, I'd like to also have people, if we were to go and work in a, in a place, have uh, the, all of the participants be able to be, you know, half and half, and then whatever occurs, say we were to go back to St. Petersburg, have the artists in St. Petersburg come to New York so that we could actually do it in both places. Do you find that there's, I don't know, a different sensibility, perspective, um, when you're working with creators who aren't from the U.S.? It just... Uh, Yes, always, but but it, it's like it just gets more three dimensional. You know, I think that we have our own personal viewpoints of things, and then we have our um, our third rail viewpoint on a thing, and then we have our New York viewpoint, and then we have our U.S. You know, it's like it, there are these levels of um, you know little biospheres around even our creativity that when you when you can go outside of that completely and and have it meet another context it just gets more three-dimensional the conversation takes on more depth I think and um I always find that that that's kind of related to the vocabulary question like it's not only a performance vocabulary it's a cultural vocabulary that you have to establish because you're you're all coming in together and it could be that you're from different countries it could be that you're from completely different backgrounds. In Kyrgyzstan, we had a group of people that were made up of teachers, uh, social workers, photographers, a couple dancers, and a few theater people that all got together. And in a way, that's how it always works in this type of process. And that's what I love about it is because even if we were all theater people, we're working in a really different way than, than you normally would. So we have to develop vocabulary. And it takes about four days. You know, and then by the fourth day, you don't need the translator. You don't need like it, it just starts to work because you've established what you're doing, and it has a vocabulary to it. I always find and that was true at Wesleyan. I just taught the winter session there, and yeah, my students yeah. there had to go through that same process. You know, it's like Monday's tough, Tuesday's really hard, Wednesday, you know, everybody loses their minds, and then by Thursday, you're all speaking the same language, and then it's like onward until production, and it. it I'm pretty comfortable with that. I know where it's going usually. And I know that it's like a trustworthy process, <laughs> but I have to keep telling them that like, just trust it's going to be okay. It's okay not to know because the process is about eliminating the unknowns. That is, that's the creative process. Do you find that audiences outside of New York or LA, big US cities have a frame of reference for I don't know what their local sleep no more is or their local she <laughs> fell if they even have one or if you you come some in. places have a local sleep no more it's true that that, that, that uh, 
I, I, I imagine that that gets replicated more than anything else because it's, it's so... Um, in, a, in a way, people can, can recognize the device of that and, and replicate it if they've seen it. And a lot more people have seen it, you know, I mean, just capacity-wise, a lot more people have gone through that show. Um, so I think that people... I have, I have seen people do something that looks a little similar. <laughs> a little punch drunk esque. Yeah, and, and I, I you know, I've talked to Punch Drunk too and I know they know as well that they're you know, it's like but in a in a way it's sort of like people I've seen a lot of people try to do um some similar things to then she fell. You know, like I I've gone to work and it's like, oh that looks a little and some people some people who are doing this are doing it very well and some people are experimenting and, and it's just like it's uh, part of a process in a way when you see something and it inspires you and you get excited about it you know usually the first step is you try to do it and then kind of one-up it or, mm-hmm. um, or or take it a little further or complicate it or you know sometimes you'll see people trying to do all things at once and that's like okay you learn from that too but it in, in a way, it's flattering if um, if you see people that are trying to pick it up and do something with it. And this, eventually put their own spin on it. Hopeful, on hopefully it. it's going yeah. somewhere uh, and it will meet their own original sort of creative voice. I mean, that's... I don't know. I have, I have all sorts of feelings about it, and a lot of them fall along the like lines of responsibility to an audience, like... To, you know, a lot of what we discovered, we discovered carefully over time and, and we've thought about it, thought long and hard about the choices we've made in the work and um, haven't always been successful, but have had that in mind throughout. Um, and there's a lot that goes along with being one-on-one in a room with somebody. There's a lot of dramaturgical, psychological, um, just like a very large responsibility to that person and to that performer. So that I, I always, I always look at and I try where I can to talk about it. Um, there's been a few times where I've had the opportunity to, to consult on a project or teach. And, and especially in those moments, I try to highlight what I think is important in terms of that, that level of responsibility towards audience, towards safety, towards consent. And, if you attend to those, then you can do really bold things. It's theater. You can go there, but you have to have the container tight. And, um, so that's what, that's where I, like when I'm looking at people and their ideas, I think sometimes people are getting caught up in the form and they want to just do immersive theater as opposed to make their idea come alive. Like, I don't actually care if something is immersive or not immersive. Like, that's not what defines what I go see. I'm interested in what the idea is and, and that whatever form it takes is served, is serving the idea. So, but yeah, your question was about, is this happening in other places or context for it? And I think there is. Um, there's definitely the part of it that creeps me out, which is like <laughs> that the word gets used in almost everything now. It's like, but you don't really mean that. Um, or it's just like, it, it's become such a buzzword that it's lost its meaning for a lot of people who 
make experiential work. So sometimes I, I just I just I'm leaning a little bit more on on the the word experiential when I talk about things. I don't know. It's like a double edged sword. Like sometimes that word immersive helps immediately contextualize something or it, it creates eye roll, you know, in the room. You're like, oh God, no, please not immersive. But I think that's because that term has been applied a little too much. And now, and now we're back to explaining what we are again and what we're doing. And that, and that also evolves from project to project. So I, I think it's good that the people making it have to still contextualize it because it keeps it clear in their heads but yeah uh what we what we have been assuming is immersive work i think is, is happening in a lot of places i mean there's definitely russia has picked it up and run with it we were told we were the first immersive work in russia in 2016 whether that's true or not i mean i think that's facetious to say that at any point in time anywhere because i mean people have been doing immersive theater since the beginning of people and so, you know, it's like, whatever, I take that with a grain of salt. But we did roll into St. Petersburg in 2016 with this one piece, and it was uh, contextualized in that way. And then I I was able to consult with a group that did the Chorny... I, I can't roll my R's when I've been speaking this <laughs> long. But the Chorny Ruski, which is the Black Russian show that happened in Moscow later in 2016, or early 2017 was a really successful immersive piece and it was such a huge hit it ran for 11 months and i feel like uh the producers like knew they were going to open it and run for 11 months and that would be it they were they were very committed to that it could have run forever i mean it was it was really bringing people in and they did a lot of things they they were one of the groups that did something with masks they did dip a little bit into like something that felt a little queen of the night, that felt a little then she fell, that felt a little sleep no more. I mean, it's like, it had some of that in it that you could tell they had seen the work and they were they were um, nodding a little bit to it, but they were doing their own thing. They right. really were doing their they own thing. They synthesized all of these inputs. They had taken some things that had worked mm-hmm. and they were work- using it in their own way. And even the masks, you know, they used the masks very differently. They weren't using the Venetian masks, thank God. They were using uh, these paper masks that were like deer and owl and fox or something, you know? So they, they used it as a way to also divide the party guests into these, these different um, tracks and... Uh, I thought they did it very well. I'm, I'm not sure that the show... I, I'm not sure how the show landed for a lot of people. And, you know, because I was experiencing it not as a very um, good speaker of Russian, <laughs> you know. I knew the story. It's based on um, Dubrovsky, which is an unfinished short story of Pushkin. Mm. I think, yes, I think I got that right. Um, I had read the story, and so I, w- I was familiar with it. And, you know, it, it, it adhered to that as much as we adhere to Alice in Wonderland and, you know, Sleep No adheres to Macbeth. So it um, it had some anchor points in the story like that, that I could identify, though. And um, I thought it worked. I thought it worked. Everything worked for me except for the deer mask because it had horns, and I was a deer... And the audience kept locking horns accidentally. Oh, no. <laughs> so it was like, it was a funny, little it, too realistic. It was a little funny moment where it's like, you should have tested that, I think. <laughs> or maybe, maybe a little you, more. Or maybe you did and you decided it was okay, but yeah. you didn't know how many people were going to want to come to this. So it, um, it was cool. I, I thought they did a good job. There's some other things that have been going on 
uh, also, I think, in Moscow and St. Petersburg that, that are, um, I haven't seen, but they, they have, they but have, they're out there. They have that yeah. look, that immersive look <laughs> with them, and they have the masks. Um, but there's, there's also, you know, like, uh, Sleep No More is in Shanghai. It's like changing the game in Shanghai. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful production. It, um, I actually really love that version quite a lot. I like, I like the design choices that they made to, to localize it, to make it fit a little bit more. Um, and, and also I, I really enjoy the, um, the casting in that, the way that it's, it's, a uh, it's sort of ha half, uh, local, half, um, punch drunk, which is, which is a combination of people from the UK and people from the US. And, um, there's, some, there's just something about that synthesis that really works in that show. Um, and watching, watching like Chinese audiences discover that and be like, whoa, this is, and now there's some hunger for that there too. Um, that's, that's predominantly my experience because that's where I've spent my time has been in, in Russia and China. So I, I know that it's, it's happening. I can't speak for other countries, but, but I, I know there's interest. There's definitely like, you know, like I said, Mexico city, I've been talking to someone there and we're, we're very excited about what, what could happen, you know? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so to go back to, I guess, maybe some of the classes that Third Rail offers mm -hmm. or your course at Wesleyan that just finished, how do you, for, for aspiring immersive creators, how do you get them from being inspired to actually making something? Well, uh, I, we just make available what we, what we know, what we teach, or what we're interested in, because we're not always teaching what we know, we're teaching kind of where we're looking. So sometimes that that can be a very unexpected path. People come in and it's like, well, it, it always sort of anchors back to this idea of creating something with an audience in mind and that it's on some level experiential because I think it's what people are looking to us for. But I don't think we're trying to move anybody in that direction. I, in fact, I actually advocate quite a lot for putting that aside and, and really looking at what your idea is and what, what you have in your own wheelhouse that you really want to come forward with and say, and then what can serve it? And is there something from this? You know, I, I go through that process with myself, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't have a checklist of things that I'm trying to do. I just have this toolbox full of, full of all these things that I, that I've experimented with and that I know can be done. So I, I try to encourage that more than anything. It's like, don't do it just to do it. Do it because it's the way to make this idea really come alive. Now, I, th I think there's a drive because people people who are both creators and people who are audience are, are seeking that. They're seeking things that are like feel like events, that feel like um, fully present moments that feel, feel exciting in that way. So I, th I think that culturally... Um, that's just a, that's a big space to fill and, and there's a lot of excitement towards that. So, yeah, I, we try to, we try to teach what we know and, 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 and also share what we think about. Cause I think that that, that always leads you to make the work that is most of you as an artist. And then if you do it in that way, it's going to go where it's meant to go and it's going to be what it's meant to be. But you have to really trust that. That's, that's, 
I think that's just like a creative process point of view. But your class at Wesleyan did end up. It did end up being a show, an an immersive show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the way we talked about that, what I actually spent a few days just, um, yeah, talking, talking and experimenting more with like interpersonal dynamics and, and what intuition looks like and how you can break it down and what it means to, um, be in that close proximity with each other and and like really just looking at that dynamic from a performer perspective and then experimenting from there. And then they also came to see Then She Fell, so they had a lot of ideas after that, which is, uh, that's always kind of cool in a way. And that's also like, well, what would have happened if they hadn't seen that? You know, so, so, I don't know. It makes, it makes, uh, it makes talking about it easier in some ways because there, there is a reference point. But I'm also curious when there's no reference point where things go. So anyway, that's the the track we took with that was they saw Then She Fell, they came back. And um, the idea was they were going to start creating somewhere in the spaces of the Center for the Arts. And we were using a number of different spaces within that, a a freight elevator, a conference room, the tunnels that connect the buildings underground, which are these very long, creepy tunnels. And then the, um, the concert hall. And, and all the areas around the concert hall. So people, the students, uh, on the first day, actually, we, we toured those spaces and just to see what people connected to, just, you know, like architecturally, or was there a story that sort of emerged for them in that? And so we, we kind of started with the idea of space and structure and allowed content to come later, which isn't always the way to go, but it's the way that we went. And... I think that was like really unusual for all of them and a little bit for me too because I usually start with content personally and then build structure around that. So this was, this was it because I, I, I knew that the structure part would be on me <laughs> in a way like I would have to make this work <laughs> but I wanted them to have their own individual points of inquiry into this and you know they weren't all theater majors. They were, I had a game designer and a composer and um philosopher and actually it was it was brilliant because they they were all working from their strengths and experimenting with this idea of performing and they kept checking in and at one point we dubbed uh one of the students the dramaturg and he would have to like check in with people and keep an eye on 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 the narrative threads and not it didn't become oppressive that everyone had to attend to that but but they were looking for opportunities and where they could connect, and what what it ended up boiling down to was they they were looking at, you know, themes of maps, themes of what it means to map your way, and what how that fails, and, and when you get off course, and then like, um, what parts of you exist in shadow, and I, it got really deep, really fast, and they did a beautiful job, and in the end, it had a, a very cohesive theme, and. Um, and yet they were all in charge of a certain aspect of it that, that belonged to them, their own scene. So it was, it was very cool. It all happened in, in like 10 days. You know? Oh my gosh. So it's, it's in a way that that's a brilliant structure too, because you don't have time. You don't have time to get precious with anything. You have to just like go with the best first thoughts. And, um, I think it blew, they blew their own minds by the end of it. Cause I don't, I don't think they expected that they were going to work 
so fast, so deep, so hard, and then like come out with such an amazing amount of material. Um, I believed it would happen, <laughs> but I think um, I was also quite impressed in the end with, with what they were able to do. It's a good group. I go back in a week. I have, so part of my, I have a fellowship with the um, Center for the Arts right now. And so part of that was my own research and, and I've, I was there in the fall and then I taught the winter session and then I go back in um, another week to kind of wrap up my research. And we're going to do a presentation as well for the theater um, department as a whole and the students are going to come talk about the work. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds great. The other third rail courses are perhaps not as long, not as intense. Well, some of them, we're, we're experimenting a little bit more with doing intensive. Janine's just did um, an intensive at Gibney. And I think Marissa, you have to check our website. I think Marissa is going to be leading a little mini intensive in spring or summer. And I'm going to do an intensive over the summer too, but I think I'm going to space it out. So it's just one day a week. Um, Awesome. We so did an intensive, our first third rail intensive last summer, which was one full week, and um, we had all of our teaching um, staff together. So it was Janine, myself, Marissa, Edward, Tara, Rebecca. Wow. And we all um, we all were together for a full week with a group of students at Town Stages, and we just, you know, one of us would teach in the morning, one in the afternoon, and, and we would all participate throughout. That was very cool. Yeah. I think we'll do more. What kinds of things um, can someone expect if they want to uh, take one of these courses? Oh, there, there's a wide range. There, um, some of them are from like somatic practice perspectives. Um, a lot of Marissa's work comes from that, um, but all, she also teaches like some straight up like performance immersive skills. There, uh, Edward and Tara and uh, Rebecca all teach performance skills, and uh, Janine and I will often teach like more director driven courses. Um, and, and I'll sometimes go into more conceptual dramaturgical points of view too. So, and, and Janine does as well. She and I co-taught an intensive in Shanghai last summer, which was, was really, it was really intense actually. <laughs> it was so hot. And, um, we were, we were just, yeah, for eight, I think it was like eight hours a day for five days straight. And we covered a lot of territory, but it was sort of from, the moment of ideation all the way through directing from the audience's perspective. Like we, we covered a lot of ground. So, um, with our in-house offerings, you sort of get those one at a time and you kind of can put those together yourself based on your own interest. And then occasionally we do put them all together. Awesome. Yeah. So what is next for you, Tom? What's Uh, what's coming down the pike that you can actually tell us about? Well, we're all gathering. To, Zach has been working on Confection, which is this piece for Folger with a group of our artists. And Janine has uh, folded into that process as well. And then I I created a little bit of choreography <laughs> about two months ago um, and uh, have been doing some other things. But now I'm about to fold back into that process, too. And then we'll all be in D.C. at the Folger uh, working together in... Um, in March for our, our premiere there. And then after that, I am going to, um, I'll be in Italy for spring. I, uh, 
am working, I continue working towards this uh, new project, which will premiere in the fall. And my Wesleyan fellowship was part of that. The Boliosco Foundation Fellowship in Italy is part of that. And I'll, I'll focus a little bit more on the writing while I'm in Italy. And then I have a rehearsal period that will come later in spring and summer here in New York. And then stay tuned and we'll tell you, we'll tell you where where that's headed. Something is coming later this year. Something is coming later this year that I'm very excited about, but you'll have to be patient and I'll be able to tell you soon. So how can someone keep up with you, um, international head of mystery? I think going going to our website, thirdroutprojects.com, is the best way. That's sort of the mothership, and you can find um, you can find everything from there. You can get to Then She Fell. You can get to Global Performance Studio. You could even find me. I have my own um, separate author website for my writing, which is a kind of new thing, but you can find me through Third Rail. So and, uh, the book is out. I believe you can stream the documentary. Yes. Look out for new work from yourself, Tom, Janine, all of you. And um, thank you so much, Tom. That was a delight. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Tom Pearson of Third Rail Projects for being our guest on the show today and for Catherine Yu, our managing editor, for holding down the guest host duties while I um, am weathering the storm before production. Um, I'll tell you this much. We do we do this. We co-produce the Design Summit. Uh, we, we do this once a year. We've done it two years ago now this year is infinitely more complicated than last year uh and it's just reminding me of the massive respect i have for anyone who produces anything um getting anything into existence is uh, an incredible feat um be proud of it <coughs> it might not be the thing you intended <laughs> when you're done with it I'm not saying that's not an idea i mean we're fine with ideas this year i'm just i'm just thinking of you know when someone goes like oh no just just in all other things, stop yourself and remember, you made a thing. Uh, and this world is not exactly designed for making things. Like, humans need to. It's part of our, I don't know, compulsion uh, one way or another. But uh, everything in existence sort of is like, no. Um, so having the perseverance. I mean, look, there, there are times when people go, no, and you should be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's not a great idea. Uh, but sometimes, and when things are working right, people go, say it with me, no. And then a little idea comes in and you're all, okay, what if we did this though? And then it works out. So there's been a lot of, a lot of that this week, which is awesome. Problem solving, problem solving. I'm in that place where um, there's so many things in so many domains because, like, it's it's not just IDS. There's 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 personal world stuff. There's there's Leia. Uh, there's keeping no pro going during all this. Right. Uh, I, I don't have the day job right now, or I would be broken. Uh, like I'm off the day job this month. Uh, but um, there's so many things that like everything has the same emotional weight. Like everything's got the same weight right now. And there are so many of them that everything's small. So it's just like, do, 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 get through everything. 
Um, I'm going to collapse mightily, I think, on February 25th. There'll be this sighing sound that you can hear throughout the Bay Area. Uh, and then a rumble. Uh, wow, what if there's going to be an earthquake that day? That'd be kind of really funky. Anyway, I'm trying not to summon an earthquake. I'm just saying, like, if one happens, yeah, that was me. Um, all right. Enough about me. Uh, we talked at the beginning. I kind of gave the like, please press releases. Um, uh, you know, it's like be kind, be kind to your local neighborhood immersive journalists. Uh, press releases help a lot. Um, and 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 note, just like you know, volume is going up, right? So if you don't do the press release, then uh, you might not get into the stream and volumes going up readership's going up for us uh listenership's going up for us uh everything with the patreon is going up for us and just you know just be cognizant that uh a good nice clear open channel communication really helps you can always just it's simple it's pitches at noproscenium.com um we put out a call for reviewers this week, uh, so it's true. We are we are looking for folks. Um, the terms of that are pretty straightforward. Uh, we're looking for folks uh, both in places we cover and especially in places we don't cover with a preference towards voices who are uh, from marginalized communities. Um, this is not just, some people go, oh, well, you, you just want to be PC. Mm, no. I mean, yes, because like I'm chill about that, but like it's there's there's something deeper than that. It's not about it's not about appearances. It's about an important part of the nature of the work. Um, if this form is to survive long term, then it must reflect a variety of points of view. Um, that's just the way the world is going and it's great. Um, insert long rant about, you know, humanity figuring out that it's a single thing, right? So, uh, look, I'm, I'm a hippie at heart and we all know that. So we won't go into there. The, the reasoning is simple and straightforward. If you have a discipline that is fundamentally about the participant experience, the user experience, the audience experience. The only way to test truly if it's working and if the intended effects are, hap are, ha are happening is if you test it against people with many different points of view. That tells you what the essential nature of the work actually is, not just the folks who are primed for it, but folks who aren't. Not just people who have a long cultural history in that dialectic, but folks coming from a different point of view. This is why it's essential. This is why uh, in criticism, it's, it's so good to have divergent points of view, to have people come in with new perspectives in order to illuminate not what the artist intended. That's not even, that's not even the point. It's about how it's landing. That's the calibration effect. When a critic isn't just banging a drum and, and either being a cheerleader or a consumer reporter 
or trying to bend everything to their point of view, right? Like a, a, a strictly locked lens. They're in a conversation with the art. They are observing truthfully what it is they're seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting. And they're letting everyone else know how they are interpreting it. It is a dialogue. It is feedback to the artist in order for the artist to calibrate whether or not their vision is being communicated. And it's a calibration tool for the reader to know whether or not that work is something that might speak to them. Not that they might like or that they might hate, but just that it might speak to them. I think I mentioned on the show before, one of my favorite film reviewers to read is Mick LaSalle, or at least he used to be. I don't even know if he's still around anymore. Um, he wrote in the Bay Area. He was, I think, the, the film critic for The Chronicle or maybe The Examiner. I think The Examiner because I read the afternoon paper. That's what it was. Now, if a film had been made before 1972, Mick LaSalle and I usually agreed lockstep, particularly if it was film noir. We loved the same films. But starting in 72... Which is before I was born, so I'm not saying, oh, I added myself as a vampire. Uh, no, um, starting around 72 in terms of the, the body of work, if a film had been made after that, we usually wildly disagreed. Um, some of my favorite films of the 90s and the early aughts, he hated with a virtuoso level of passion. And I loved them equally. So when I had a question, I've totally told the story before, when I had a question about um, whether or not a film I wasn't sure about, I'd read Mick's review because I knew if he loved it, I was going to hate it. And if he hated it, I was going to love it. And that's that part of the calibration effect. Um, he was a very entertaining writer. I'm not always entertaining uh, when I'm writing this stuff. Uh, I'm not, that's not what I'm necessarily looking to do in trance. What I am looking to do is to inform as best as possible, which indeed is what this whole endeavor is about. We're trying to inform everybody. We're trying to get the good word out there about the lovely, amazing thing that is this immersive culture project. An ICP, if you will, uh, a dark carnival. Sorry, that was for Juliet. Um, okay. It's late. I'm making insane clown posse jokes. I haven't made one of those in like 10 years, so I got to be tired. Thank you all for putting up with me, uh, the ones of you who do. Uh, please check out the Patreon. If we get to $1,500, which is like, you know, 170 bucks away, 270 bucks away, it's a ways away. We're at 12. I guess it's 270. Anyway, $270 away from now, we get to start socking away money for travel funds for the team. Not for me, but for the team. Uh, which will help us do more of this coverage thing uh, and will help spread the good word. All right. Thank you all so much. Let's do the credits. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. You can contact us at 
pitches at nopersinium.com if you have a show, a press release maybe. Uh, you can find me, Noah, at nopersinium.com. Uh, we're also at nopersinium.com. I'm at Noah J. Nelson on Twitter, and we are at no proscenium on Twitter. We're at no underscore proscenium on Instagram, where Catherine rocks it. She also rocks it on the Twitter, but she particularly rocks it on the Instagram. Uh, and we're at no proscenium on Facebook. And of course, there's always everything immersive in the Slack and the this and the that. Look, just come on down. Come on down. Let's get you fitted with a Fiat. Um, where did that come from? I don't even know anymore. Okay. Uh, I gotta go. Until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>